17 to 21. And as we'll see, the, the key word really of these verses is fear. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And so we're going to look at this morning, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And what does First Peter have to teach us about the fear of the Lord? So we're going to read a few other passages that also uh, speak to the fear of the Lord. And one thing I hope you see in these passages is how uh, different the fear of the Lord is from what we would normally think of on just a human plane or an earthly plane as fear, right? When we normally think of fear, we just think of being afraid, right? Being scared of something, being scared that something is going to hurt us. And yet in all of these passages that we're going to read, what we find is something remarkable. That is that we should fear the Lord, that it is commanded and it is good to fear the Lord. And yet the Lord is also good to us. He, he's not threatening to harm us. He's not, he's not a danger to us. And yet we fear the Lord. And so in all these passages, I hope you can see both this message of God's amazing love for us, and yet, at the same time, this message of our duty, our responsibility to nevertheless fear him. And, uh, and so I hope that God will help to bring together in our hearts this morning uh, what, how exactly both of those things can be um, at the same time. So, uh, first, Moira will come up and read for us from our main text in First Peter. Uh, Jackie will then come up and read for us from Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 21. Then Matt will come up and read Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. And then finally, Sadie will come and read for us Matthew uh, 10, 24 to 33. So let's listen now to the word of the Lord. First Peter 1, verses 17 to 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Deuteronomy ten twelve through 21. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold to the Lord your God, belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear." He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Hebrews ten twenty six. For if we go on sinning deliberately, 
after receiving knowledge of the truth, there is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Matthew ten, twenty-four to 33 A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house feasible, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Well, in that final passage we read in Matthew, you probably saw um, a little more starkly the... um, the issue with the word fear uh, that we might have, right? On, in one sentence, Jesus says, fear him who can kill the body and soul in hell. In other words, Jesus saying, fear God. And then just a couple sentences later, Jesus says, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And so clearly in scripture itself, there is a right sense in which to fear God. And there is a wrong sense in which to fear God. And again, our passage in First Peter this morning directs us to that right fear of God. Let me just read again for us verse 17 of 1 Peter 1. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Now, this is the primary command in our passage this morning. Indeed, it's the only command. We are commanded to conduct ourselves in fear throughout our time in exile. The rest of our verses that we'll be looking at this morning really serve to support this command. They teach us how to fear the Lord or why uh, to fear the Lord. But the main command we want to look at this morning is just that command in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, this verse itself comes right on the heels of the preceding verse that we looked at last week, where we are commanded to be holy, for God is holy. And, of course, that is intentional. 
There is a clear link between holiness and fear. The only way we can grow in holiness, the only way we can walk in holiness is to walk in the fear of the Lord. This is made plain throughout the Old Testament, especially Moses in his final sermon, that book of Deuteronomy that we read some from, he commands the people over and over, fear the Lord in order that you may walk in his ways. Fear the Lord so that you will be a holy people. And so it is absolutely critical that we learn to fear the Lord. And yet I recognize again how difficult it is for us, both as moderns, uh, you know, Americans who love equality, who love uh, just standing as peers with everything and everyone around us, and as people who are on this side of the cross, right? People who know the forgiveness of God. It's hard for us sometimes to really accept the fact or to understand the fact that we are nevertheless to fear the Lord. Now, it's been very helpful to me this week to dive into this notion of fear of the Lord. And I just want to, right off the bat, try to correct a, a wrong notion of fear that so many of us can have. Again, most of the time, I think when we talk about fear, Just in our modern day, we are talking about the fear of something terrible happening to us. We're talking about the fear of harm in some way. Now, when you look at theological literature, what theologians write about when they write about fear, they call this a slavish fear, a slavish fear. Because why does a slave serve his master? Well, a slave serves his master primarily because he is worried about getting punished, right? He is worried about the master beating him or penalizing him in some other way. And so the whole motive behind any system of slavery, whether it's ancient Roman or a century-old American or whatever the practice may be, the whole basis for any system of slavery is fear, the fear that slaves have for their masters. Indeed, sometimes in human history, this slave was written large, the Spartans were famous, and that every couple years they would just intentionally kill a third of their slaves just so that the slaves would know that they must continue to fear and that they wouldn't revolt against their masters. And because we have this notion of fear, sometimes we can wrongly project this type of fear on God. And we think that when God commands us to fear him, mainly what God is commanding is he's commanding that we be afraid of what he might do to us if we mess up afraid of what might happen to us if we cross him in the wrong way. And yet this is exactly the wrong way to think about the fear of God in the Bible. Again, Jesus says, fear not, we're worth more than many sparrows. God cares for us. John tells us perfect love casts out fear. And I believe this is precisely the sort of fear that perfect love does cast out. It casts out this fear of harm, this fear of punishment, this fear of retribution. When we really come to know the love of God in Jesus Christ, no longer do we just fear God like he's some angry slave master. No longer do we fear him as someone who's going to slap us across the face if we go the wrong way or something like that. That is not the sort of God that we serve. That is not the sort of relationship that we have with our God in Jesus Christ. And so we must remove that idea of fear toward God from our thoughts, from our vocabulary, from our way of conduct. We do not fear God in that way. And yet, again, even though we do not fear God in that way, 
Nevertheless, there is a very clear command to fear God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, from beginning to end, we must be ones who fear the Lord. Just because we don't fear his retribution or fear his punishment, nevertheless, we fear the Lord. And so what is that fear of the Lord that we are talking about if it is not fear of retribution? Well, one of the amazing things in Scripture is that the fear of the Lord seems clearly to be something of a compound emotion, you could say. It's something that has many different parts. Many different emotions actually come together to create the one greater emotion called the fear of the Lord. In fact, many writers say that the fear of the Lord is the fundamental posture that we have toward the Lord that includes every other emotion that we're supposed to have toward the Lord. So the fear of the Lord includes love toward the Lord. The fear of the Lord includes awe towards the Lord. The fear of the Lord includes reverence toward the Lord. The fear of the Lord includes worship to the Lord. Every obligation that we have toward the Lord is summed up under this larger idea of fearing the Lord. And we can see that, I think, even in Scripture, because the fear of the Lord is treated as something of a summary of our whole responsibility to God. And Scripture itself tells us to love God, does it not? Scripture itself tells us to revere God, to honor Him, to praise Him, to feel like a son to Him. And yet, even with all these various commands, Scripture itself still summarizes our posture towards God as one of fear. This is probably clearest at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the final or second to last verse, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commandments, this is the whole duty of man. Indeed, even the positive actions of God toward us, the good actions of God towards us are given as reasons to fear. Psalm 130 verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. Why? That you may be feared. (laughs) Now again, is this not counterintuitive to us in the way we normally think about fear? Normally we would think, oh, I've been forgiven. Now I don't have to fear anymore, right? That's how we normally think. And yet, again, in scripture we say, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so, There's some way in which forgiveness is actually supposed to contribute to our fear of the Lord. And this is why, again, I say fear of the Lord must not be simply fear of punishment or fear of wrath, but something else altogether, something much richer and fuller and more complex than simply running in terror from a God who might punish us. And yet, fear and understanding the fear of the Lord does take great diligence. My heart was provoked this week by looking at Proverbs 2, verses 3 to 5. It says this, it says, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Seek it like silver. Search for it as for hidden treasures. Call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. And, and as I wrestled with First Peter this week and just wrestled with what does it really mean to fear the Lord, and I come to this passage in Proverbs and I realize, have I ever really sought the fear of the Lord like silver or like hidden treasure? 
Should it be surprising to us that so few of us really understand and grasp the fear of the Lord when we don't pursue it in this way? Indeed, when we think the fear of the Lord, that emotion of fear is something that itself we should fear, that we should run away from. And so, so far from seeking it like silver and searching for it like hidden treasure, no, we actually put it to the side and say, no, I don't think we should fear the Lord. We think we should just feel good around the Lord, feel comfortable around the Lord. And instead, Scripture tells us that we should seek the fear of the Lord like silver and like hidden treasure. Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the end of the matter, is the whole duty of mankind. The fear of the Lord is something amazing and wonderful. Indeed, it was startling to me too to to read in Ecclesiastes, again, that the whole end of the matter is that we fear the Lord. And then I go to the Westminster Confession and the very first thing, it says, what is the chief end of mankind? Or to put it in the words of Ecclesiastes, what is the whole duty of mankind? Well, the Westminster Confession says it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the Westminster Confession doesn't say the chief end of man is to fear God, but Ecclesiastes says the chief end of man is to fear God. And so again, it helps me to see, it helps to expand my concept of what the fear of God is, to understand that within this concept of the fear of God is also this concept of delight in God. I wonder what you frame in your heart as the most wonderful thing you could ever feel, as the the highest height of of all emotion. You know, some people, uh, we have the, the term in our culture today, adrenaline junkies. You know, some people think that the the greatest feeling they could ever have is actually the feeling of terror, right? And so they go skydiving or bungee jumping, you know, doing these things that will fuel this adrenaline rush in them. And they think that that's the the greatest feeling that they could have. Other people are quite the opposite, right? They're called couch potatoes. They think that the, the greatest feeling you could have is that feeling of no obligation, all day to just sit down, relax, do whatever you want. That's really the pinnacle of the human life, right? And there's people everywhere in between. What is the, the greatest emotion that you could conceive of? What is that emotion that you find yourself pursuing in your life? Well, beloved, I would commend to you to pursue the fear of the Lord above all things. It is the greatest emotion. It is the greatest experience that a human being can have. Probably the, the best definition or uh, distinction of what the fear of the Lord is that I read this week came from a book uh, by Christina Fox called Holy Fear, and she herself is relying upon older and other theologians, but she divided the fear of the Lord into four distinct emotions that we could have that when they all come together, then we truly experience the fear of the Lord. And again, I don't know that this is necessarily comprehensive, right? Scripture itself never uh, unpacks the fear of the Lord into four distinct emotions. And yet, as I read through these things and as I studied these things, I did see these things coming up again and again throughout Scripture as defining for us what is the fear of the Lord. Now, the first thing that she said was the fear of the Lord was the feeling of awe or wonder. And indeed, sometimes people, when they talk about the fear of the Lord, they want to reduce the fear of the Lord merely to that feeling of awe or wonder. 
And I don't think we should reduce the fear of the Lord to the feeling of awe or wonder, but at the same time, we cannot really fear the Lord unless we have awe or wonder toward the Lord. I wonder what in your life has maybe most struck awe or wonder into your heart, or you could even say terror into your heart as you realize the majesty of something, the wonder of something. I know for me and my own heart, what's done that is massive thunderstorms. I don't think I've ever been more scared in my life than times when I have been in the midst of storms that just seem like they are going to tear my house down. I remember particularly as a young kid who grew up for a decent portion of my childhood in the state of Kansas. And Kansas is very known for huge thunderstorms that spawn numerous tornadoes. And I remember one time in particular when we were living on post at Fort Leavenworth and the, the homes there, the quarters didn't have basements. And so that meant that if there was a tornado warning, you couldn't stay in your home because there was no safe place if you were above ground. And so I remember one time in particular when we were living there in Fort Leavenworth, there was a huge uh, tornado warning that went out. And so what we were supposed to do if there was a tornado warning was to go to the hospital because the hospital did have a basement. And so my family rushed into the car. We were driving to the hospital and we look out across the flat plains of Kansas and we can see probably two miles off in the distance, a huge tornado just spinning on the horizon as we're trying to get to the hospital so that we'll be safe. And in a moment like that, you know, with rain pouring down on the car, the winds blowing the car across the road, you just feel in that moment, I might die. (laughs) I might not make it through this. And there is nothing that I could do. No one could build a car strong enough to withstand these winds. No one could build a home strong enough to withstand these winds. You just have awe. You have terror in light of this tornado, in light of the storm. I mean, heck, even just a couple nights ago, I was at John Haluda's house, and it was just a windy night, right? There wasn't even a huge storm or anything, but the winds were blowing, and in John's house, the power was going in and out, and you could hear the wind howling outside. He had a couple of his doors open. I don't know why he did that. It just scared me to death. But, you know, you could hear it outside, and just even just a little strong wind just makes us feel our weakness, makes us feel wonder at the power of these storms. And beloved, if we feel that kind of wonder at just a storm, how much more wonder, how much more terror, how much more awe should we feel before the God of the universe? The God who not only creates these storms, but creates the planet itself on which storms exist. And as I've come to learn a little bit more about other planets, did you know that the storms on planet Earth are not even worth comparing to the storms that happen on Jupiter or on other planets? where winds can get into the thousands of miles an hour, or just this past week in the news, apparently a chunk of the sun was shot off into outer space, something almost the size of the earth itself. If we fear these storms, these things on earth that can do us so much harm, how much more should we fear the Lord? Should we stand in awe and wonder of the Lord? So that's the first aspect to the fear of the Lord. The second aspect of the fear of the Lord that Christina Fox gives us is reverence. Reverence. Now here she gives the best example of reverence is the example of what people in a monarchy, people in a kingdom, feel for their king, feel for their monarch. Right? Here 
in America, we don't have a monarchy, right? We have a president, and we don't like the idea of revering another man. In fact, when the founders first created the presidency, they also debated, what should we call the president? Should we call him your majesty? Should we call him your royal highness? All of these things, and all that was shut down, right? It's like, no, we don't call another person royal highness. We don't call another person majesty. We're Americans, right? We don't, we don't revere anyone. We don't fear anyone. And so it's, a hard, it's hard for us to understand this idea of reverence, especially the reverence that people have for their king if they live in that form of government. And yet it's very healthy for us to consider what that would be like because that is how we're supposed to feel toward God. When we come to God, we're not just supposed to call him just buddy or pal. It is fitting to call God your royal, your royal highness, your royal majesty, and something even higher than that. Indeed, as we read in Deuteronomy, it said he is God of God and Lord of lords. He is the Lord most high. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He is the Holy One of Israel. And so we reverence him rightly. Just in prayer before the service, uh, Matt was using the example of Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I know most of you probably already know this example, but if you're not familiar with this example, let me give it to you now because it's one of the best examples, I think, of how we are supposed to feel toward the Lord. This example comes from a time in the Chronicles of Narnia when uh, Susan and Lucy were going to meet Aslan in just a little bit. And so they were asking Mr. and Mr. Beaver a little bit about Aslan so they could know um, what it was going to be like to meet him. And Aslan, of course, he's the, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's, he's a lion. But Susan and Lucy don't know this, and so they're asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they ask him, they say, is he, is Aslan a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so when we come to God, we understand him in that way, that he is good, but he's not safe. He is the king on high. He is the king of all. And therefore we tremble before him, precisely because of how great and powerful he is. We revere him. And this creates in us the fear of the Lord. The third thing that Christina Fox says is part of the fear of the Lord is worship or praise. Here, when I think of the fear of the Lord is worship, I can't help but think of Isaiah 6. And I know I refer to Isaiah 6 a lot, but it's such a central passage in Scripture as Isaiah comes into the throne room of God. And he comes into the throne room of God and he sees this majestic God who simply has a train of his robe so big that it's filling up the whole temple. And he has these heavenly beings called seraphim, flaming ones, all around him, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
These seraphim clearly see the greatness, the grandeur of God, and so they cry out in worship continually. And Isaiah himself, when he comes face to face with this most high, most majestic God, he falls on his face and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He worships the Lord for his holiness because he comes to the Lord in the fear of the Lord. And then the final aspect of the fear of the Lord that Christina Fox gives us is love and adoration. Love and adoration. And this brings us to the idea of what's called filial fear. Filial is just a Latin word for son. And so we're talking about the the fear that is like the fear that a son has for a good father. When a son truly adores their father, when they truly love their father, then they're appalled at the idea of somehow offending their father or breaking relationship with their father. And so there is a certain reverence or love for your father that, again, you're not worried necessarily that your father is going to punish you in some very severe way. It's just you're attached to him by these bonds of love. And so because you're attached to him in that way, you don't want to disappoint him. You don't want to let him down. Now, I also had the privilege as a young man to grow up and my father was a was an airborne army ranger, right? He had gone to ranger school, he'd gone to airborne school. Uh, he had commanded a platoon of airborne rangers when he was a younger man before I was born. And so I did have this sense of uh, reverence or fear for my father, right? I knew that if, if he and I got into a tangle, that I would lose big time, right? And probably still today, if he and I were to get into a tangle, I would lose. But I also really respected my father and honored him because I knew he had done these hard things that I couldn't imagine doing. You know, I couldn't imagine myself going to airborne school or to ranger school or these things. My dad was a tough guy because he could do those things and I knew that I couldn't do those things. And so I had this this desire to honor my father and please him. And so when my father gave me instructions, I wanted to carry them out. Not so much because I was afraid of what he would do to me, but just because I thought he was a really great guy. He really knew a lot. He was really wise. And so if he wanted me to do something, then I should go and do it. And so I loved my father in this way, not, not the way that, uh, you know, someone maybe just loves a friend or the way that someone loves a spouse, but I loved my father. And so I wanted to serve him. And so this is also part of the fear of the Lord, this filial fear of the Lord. We honor the Lord. We think the Lord is perfect in every way. And, and therefore it's, scares us. It makes us tremble a little bit to think that we would disappoint him or that we would cross him because we don't want to fall out of relationship with him. We love him. And so there's fear of the Lord that comes from that. And so in all these things, we see the fear of the Lord expanded, right? It's not just I'm worried that God is going to strike me dead. No, it's I see the Lord is awesome and powerful. I see him as a great king. I see him as someone to be worshipped. I see him as someone I love. And so in this way, the word fear, when applied to the Lord, refers to this thing that really is the, the greatest emotion, the greatest feeling, the most wonderful feeling that the human heart could have. Imagine it too, at one time, at one and the same time, to be terrified of his power to want to worship him for his greatness, to revere him for his majesty, and to love him for his goodness. 
and to feel that all at once. It's your soul being overwhelmed. It is your soul being filled up. It is you being human as you were meant to be. And so again, I exhort you, beloved, with Peter to fear the Lord. Conduct yourselves with fear during your time of exile. Now, when we come to 1 Peter in particular, again, it should be striking to us the grounds upon which Peter commands us to fear the Lord. First of all, recall how Peter has opened his letter. Look back to 1 Peter 1 verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now again, that doesn't sound like someone who we should just fear his punishment, right? Peter actually tells us that we're being guarded by God. We're being guarded by God for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So thus far, Peter has encouraged us to draw near to the Lord with confidence and boldness as ones who are under the protection of God. And indeed we are. We are under the protection of God. And yet, nevertheless, we come here to 1 Peter 17, and we are commanded to conduct ourselves in fear. But then notice, perhaps even more startling, why or or how we are commanded to fear the Lord. So look at the beginning of verse 18. It says, knowing that you were ransomed. And he goes on from there. But that word knowing, it's a participle. It modifies the phrase, conduct yourselves with fear. How are we to conduct ourselves with fear? We are to conduct ourselves with fear through knowing. Through knowing just what Peter is about to say. So it's through knowing what Peter is about to tell us that we conduct ourselves in fear, that we grow in the fear of the Lord. Well, what is it that Peter tells us that we should know in order that we will fear the Lord? knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then he's going to go on from there to describe just how precious this blood is. But here's what we need to know if we are truly going to fear the Lord. We need to know that we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In other words, it is the more we come to know that we have been purchased by Christ, it is the more we come to know the price at which we have been bought, the price at which we have been purchased, it is the more we come to know that that we come to walk more and more in the fear of the Lord. So what does Peter tell us about this precious blood of Christ that should cause us to fear? Well, read on in verse 19. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without spot or blemish. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So do you see Peter listing out just how precious this blood of Christ is? It is precious like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. It is precious because this Christ who shed his blood was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It is precious because this one who was foreknown even before the foundation of the world is now made manifest in these last times for our sake. It is precious because this one who shed his blood was raised from the dead and given glory by God. This is the blood that was shed for you, beloved. And if you have been bought with such high a price, How could you not fear the one who would purchase you in that way? I think that this this statement of the pricelessness of the blood with which we have been bought is meant to affect our hearts in two ways. First, I think it's meant to show us how near to the Lord we have been drawn. Just how near to the Lord we have been drawn. Again, because this blood is the precious blood of the one who is foreknown before the foundation of the world. It is none other than than the blood of God himself. And if God has shed his own blood in order that we might come to him, in order that we might be covered with his blood, in order that we might be seen in his Son then that means that all the glory that God the Father is giving to God the Son, that same glory is being given to us. Beloved, how could you not tremble? How could you not fear in light of the nearness with which God is drawing you in? I think it's much harder to fear, actually, someone who is great and terrible but very far removed from you. Right? It would be one thing to fear God, if we knew how powerful he was and we knew how majestic he was, but we also knew that he would always be about a hundred miles away, we might still fear his wrath. We might still fear the lightning bolts coming from his hand, but we'd at least always know that he was going to remain distant from us. But now what this passage is telling us is that we have been purchased with priceless blood. We've been brought into the beloved so that this God whom we would already fear, even if he were far away, now how much more will we fear him that we are in the beloved, that we are in the blood of Christ, that we have been purchased with this priceless blood. Beloved, we must fear the Lord because of how near we are to him. Because we have been purchased with this blood. We can now know the nearness of God on a level that Moses, that Isaiah, that the prophets of old could have only glimpsed into, could have only longed for. And now we, in Jesus Christ, are so near to God as to be counted his own sons. So should we not fear him as a son fears his father? When we understand the nearness that the blood brought us to God the Father, then we live in fear. But the second way in which I think knowing that this blood is to be applied to us and is to make us live in fear is when we see the effect that the blood is supposed to have. You see, the 
the blood was not given merely so that we would be like nice little toys to God, right? So that we would merely be like his stuffed animal collection or something like that. No, it says that this blood was given so that we would be ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. So that we would be able to exit the way of life that we were trapped in before we came to know Jesus Christ. And in verse 20, he goes on that Jesus was made manifest in these last times so that through him we would be believers in God so that our faith and hope would be in God. This is the great aim of the blood. This is the great aim of the cross, that our faith and our hope would be in God, would be in God as opposed to be in this world, so that our faith and hope would not be in earthly things, in things that are perishing and passing away, but so that we would be able to look to God as our all in all. And beloved, if the blood is supposed to have this sort of effect upon our souls, if the blood indeed ransomed us, set us free from these futile ways that we used to live in and set our faith and our hope in God, then should we not tremble in whatever measure we do not see that taking place in our hearts? The ways that we still see ourselves, maybe in some measure, Entrapped in the ways of our forefathers or the ways we still see ourselves in some measure, not placing our faith and our hope in God? We fear because we want to say, Lord, your word says that your, your blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, has this effect on me, that it ransoms me. And it places me as your son and it puts my faith and my hope in you. And yet, Lord, I still see ways that I am not being conformed to that kind of statement, to that kind of purpose. And that's why we see a warning passage, like the passage in Hebrews that we read before the message that talks about the great price with which we have been redeemed. The great blood of the new covenant that does wash us clean. And so if this blood is to wash us clean, beloved, we must be clean. Because if this blood cannot wash us clean, then nothing else can wash us clean. And so we who have been covered by this blood, we fear not allowing this blood to have its proper effect upon our souls. We fear that this blood that God would not apply it to our hearts in the deepest ways, ransoming us from the depths of our souls, from these futile ways that we knew before to now exist in the kingdom of light and the love of our Father. So you see that being covered by the blood of Christ does not merely make us come into the presence of God now glibly, or easily, but it does make us come boldly, knowing that we are sons of God, knowing that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover us from all of our sins because it is the blood of a lamb that is without spot or blemish. And therefore, yes, we are covered by this blood and we are joyful because we are covered by this blood, but we are joyfully trembling because of this privilege that we have been given to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
You see, the blood of Christ does fill us with awe and wonder. Because when we look to the blood of Christ, we see the wrath of God entirely poured out on Jesus. We see how he was crushed. And so we tremble before the wrath of God as we see it poured out on his son. We see that it was a precious blood that God placed as a sacrifice upon that cross. The blood of Christ also produces reverence in us because it is the blood of God's own son. Through the blood of Christ, our faith and our hope does come to be put in God. We see that it is the blood of the one who is foreknown from before the foundation of the world and has appeared now for our sakes. And so it was a precious blood. It was the blood of a king that was paid upon that cross. The blood of Jesus Christ produces worship in us precisely because we see that the blood is more valuable than perishable things such as silver or gold. We see that it is a priceless blood that has purchased us, and so we worship. And the, lo- and the blood of Jesus Christ also creates in us love and adoration. Because when we see what a great price God has paid in order that we would be his, we feel how can we possibly now disappoint this God? How could we possibly run away from him as he has purchased us at so great a price? If he has loved us with such enormous a love, then how can I not love him the same way in return? And we tremble that we would not love God in that way. It was a precious blood, a blood that cost Christ everything that he gave upon that cross, beloved. And so, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we truly do come to understand the fear of the Lord. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, when we truly behold the blood that Jesus shed upon the cross, our hearts are filled with trembling, with reverence and awe, Our hearts are filled with reverence. Our hearts are filled with worship and our hearts are filled with love. When we come to the cross and we see the awesome justice and mercy of God poured out so that only then can we truly come to know the fear of the Lord. So beloved, I commend to you this morning the fear of the Lord. Make it the aim of your life to grow, to feel, to know the fear of the Lord in order that you may be holy in order that you may glorify God in your short time on earth. Would you pray with me now, both over the themes of this message and just for the needs of the world around us? Heavenly Father, we confess that we are not a people who fear you as we should. I confess that I am not a man who fears you as I should, Lord. Lord, would you teach my heart to fear your name? Unite my heart to fear your name, Lord. Would you forgive me, Lord, how I do look for thrills and fulfillment in so many other places besides the fear of your name? And would you, God, be pleased to reveal yourself to us even even right now, God, even this very moment, reveal yourself in your reality to our hearts, Lord so that we would fear you as we should. Lord, would you receive now 
our prayers of intercession on behalf of this world and our prayers of confession on behalf of ourselves and our neighbors.